Well, good morning. It's good to join you again via videocast here from our Faith Community Church offices. We're entering our second week of social distancing as a church, following the guidelines of our government leaders and those who have been appointed to us by the Lord, trying to uh, thwart the advance of the coronavirus. Following this obviously keeps everything sterile, uh, keeps us from potentially and unnecessarily infecting one another if we, uh, if we might have uh, the virus or be carriers or something, but it also keeps us from being able to experience, obviously, the fellowship and the interaction with one another as a church that we want to have. And I know that's a strain on some of you, uh, some of you who are into certainly the social scene and um, want to go out and do all kinds of things in the world. I know for others, it kind of suits you very well. Uh, for some of you, it not only keeps you sanitized from potential infection by the virus, but it also sanitizes you, at least in your mind, from the messy and sometimes um, difficult uh, relationships that you have in social interaction. You are safe, at least in your mind, not only from the virus, but you're safe from all of those kinds of painful experiences with other people. Now, I know that may not be the majority of us, but that's certainly the way some people think about uh, their life, and that's why some people are even embracing this, uh, uh, this crisis. Here you are, maybe in your recliner, curled up on your sofa with your slippers on and coffee in hand, and, and you're starting to think to yourself, you know, this is pretty nice. Um, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this. In fact, some of you sent me text after last week and asking if you could, you know, wear your slippers to church next time we get together, which is fine, which is fine. Uh, but some of you are telling yourself, you know, I kind of like this. This is a nice way to do church. I could get used to this. Now, I know some uh, think that way. Many of us do not. We enjoy church. But the reality is a lot of people uh, approach church or think about church in that kind of a manner. They come uh, maybe sort of grudgingly. Maybe they're dragged along by their spouse or by their parents or something like that. Um, or maybe they just kind of come out of habit or a sense of obligation, but their, their real preference is to be alone. I mean, they, they would prefer just sort of be in the comfort and the quiet and the reclusiveness of their house. And that's not just with church. I mean, that is, that is with all kinds of social interaction. That is an increasing trend in our society, this isolation that's coming. And if you did get used to it in terms of a church, you'd be joining a flood of Americans and people really all across the globe who are a part of a steady growing trend of online religion, online church, cyber church, as they sometimes call it. It shouldn't surprise us with each passing year and more and more of our economy goes online or in the cloud or remote or something like that, that more and more people are transporting that attitude in their approach to their religion. In fact, Christian pollster George Barna suggests that for those born after 1990, as many as one-third will identify themselves primarily with some online form, some online version of church, some blog, some celebrity preacher, rather than actually going to church uh, in person, they will they will convince themselves that this is the way they want to consume their spiritual uh, intake, their spiritual diet. My own personal experience actually suggests it isn't limited just to the young people. In fact, it may be more of a temptation for those who are in the prime of their career, who are feeling squeezed by 
their schedule, all their personal responsibilities, their job, all of their commitments to sports and clubs and leisure activities and, and uh, vacations and all of those things. More and more people grow more and more comfortable living their lives virtually through a screen and they're more and more likely to try to do that with their religion along the way. And it's not just the comfort with the virtual world. Some of them, quite honestly, just get weary of the hubbub and the drama and the complications that they're forced to deal with as they interact with people in the real world. And so they opt for online living. They opt for virtual living, and they're opting increasingly for virtual church. Now, I thought there would be no better time for us to, to pause and to actually think deeply about this particular trend, this particular subject. While we are all temporar uh, temporarily forced to, to grapple with this and deal with this and to suspend our regular meetings and to utilize technology to stay connected, and we're grateful for that technology, by the way. We're grateful for uh, the Lord's grace and giving it to us as a, as a society, as a church. We're grateful for all those who have put the time in to make this uh, an option for us and to do all the editing and the uploading and all those other things. But given the trends in society and in church, I think it's a good time for us to stop and reflect on why this kind of a format is not something that we want to look at primarily as church and why this kind of a format cannot accomplish all that the church has been designed to be by the Lord. Digital church, whether through live stream or podcast or blog or whatever, it is like most digital mediums, it is the, it is the uh, one of the factors, I should say, that at least encourages this individualistic experience. It basically facilitates the inner impulse that we already have to be primarily concerned about ourselves. In some cases, it might, it might say that instead of fostering a servant mentality, uh, we could say that it, it feeds the consumer mentality that is increasingly the way that people think about church. They think about church simply in terms of what they receive rather than in terms of what they need to, what they need to give. But all those things really run contrary to the way that God has designed church to operate. They are not the places where, uh, where we need to be bringing in these new digital realities. They're not for us to download some sort of personal encouragement. They're not for us to sort of uh, pass uh, uh, idly by while we're scrolling through all the other virtual areas of our life. Churches are places for us to actually plug in to plug into lives, to plug into ministry, to plug into interaction. In the words of Hebrews 10, as we have, we've already heard today in our scripture reading, one of the primary reasons that we are not to neglect to meet together as a church is because we're supposed to be constantly considering and reflecting how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I really want us to hear that command right now, and I want us to understand this calling, and I want us to understand it not only as an act of obedience, but I want us to understand why that is the case. And there's a number of 
ways that we could do that. There's a number of ways that we could talk about the importance of the gathering of the church. I mean, we could approach it from the most basic sense of just the ordinances and observing communion and baptism and all those things that the Lord has commanded us to do together. We could observe it just in terms of the stewardship. God has called the church the pillar and support of the truth. And that isn't my job as a, a teaching pastor or just the job of our elders as a body of leaders. That is the job of the entire congregation to continually, as a, as a matter of stewardship, uphold the truth and defend the truth. We could talk about the church just in terms of our evangelistic focus or, or uh, the, 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 I guess you might say, the image of being a body in Christ. We could talk about it all those ways, but today I want to draw our attention to one specific passage that brings a lot of these elements uh, together for us, and it's in Ephesians 4. The entire uh, chapter, which really has so much relevance for us, focuses on our life together as the body of Christ, but we're going to look really at the core of this passage in verses 11 through 16, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and let me just read this passage for us uh, together. Ephesians 4.11, Paul writes this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this passage is describing, very basically, it's describing the grace of God that's given to us when we gather as a church. The grace of God through our corporate gathering. God's grace operates through the interaction that we have with one another. And you really get that message if you back up just a little bit in the context of verses 7 and 8. In this a particular passage where Paul is talking about grace, he says, Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. So at the ascension of Christ, He dispensed all kinds of gifts to all, all kinds of people, to all of us within the church. Paul had actually been talking about this even earlier, back in chapter 3, verse 7, in terms of his own ministry. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which He's given to me by the working of His power. So Paul's already let us know that God has worked actively through him for the edification, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now he wants to describe how God has designed the church to work through you for its own edification. But Paul doesn't just name that basic uh, sort of pattern and leave it at that. He, he takes time to spell out 
in detail how this looks in the life of the gathering, the practical outcome, the practical blessings, and the practical purposes, and we might say by implication the detrimental impact if you bypass God's design. Looking back at verse 11 to begin with, Paul just simply tells us God's design for teachers. God's design for teachers. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this today because it's really not our primary focus. But Paul begins in this description of God's overall design by listing out the various leaders that God gave to the church as gifts. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some evangelists, and some as shepherds and teachers. There are four categories there. They're all sort of marked off by a demonstrative pronoun, tous in the Greek. We translated in the ESV with the definite article, the, the apostles, the prophets. If you have a New American Standard or some, uh, some other translation, it might say some. But you'll notice there's only four of those words, even though there's, there's four of those demonstrative pronouns, even though there are uh, five total words. And so what Paul's doing here is he's separating out uh, these, these various categories with this demonstrative article and telling us that God has given these various gifts. The first two, the apostles and the prophets, are foundational gifts. In fact, back in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, Paul's already kind of addressed this when he says, You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So these are foundational ministries, foundational, uh, uh, I guess you might say, gifts that were given to the church. And they were with the church temporarily, just like Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, was with us temporarily until, until He was ascended into heaven. In the same way, God gave apostles and prophets to, to serve a foundational and therefore temporal kind of a purpose. And they did that during a period of time when the church was just getting started, during a period of time when the church had no written scripture, when it needed specific direction, when it needed pioneering into brand new territories and brand new categories, God used on one hand the apostles to take the, the, the message out, and on the other hand the prophets to minister within the local church to give it that kind of direction before it had the scripture. But then after that, there came along a new generation that Paul addresses in the second category. That is the evangelist, the evangelist, which are, it's not someone uh, you might imagine who goes out on the street and, and, and preaches or hands out tracts. Well, that's a good and worthy thing to do. That's not primarily what this is talking about. In fact, the word isn't found that much in the scripture, but when you Trace it out, there are only two men who are actually called evangelists. There is Philip and there is Timothy. And you realized when you, when you read the book of Acts or read the book of, uh, books of Timothy, you realize that these evangelists were counterparts to the apostles. They would be involved with founding of churches in new frontier areas and then would often remain with those churches for years, maybe even decades, while they try to appoint godly leadership and astound established sound doctrine in that place. Now obviously that kind of work goes on today, except we normally refer to these people as missionaries or as church planners. They go usually to places where Christ is little known and they plant themselves sometimes for decades 
to establish and to build up and to strengthen churches. This is vital in the ongoing work of the church, and we continue to make it a high priority in our own ministry. But for the local church, the primary group who interact with the church is the final group that Paul talks about, the pastor-teachers. Again, this is a single single designation, a single sort of office, if you will. Those shepherd-teachers, those shepherds who are teachers, those men who are uh, operating among us and giving oversight to the church, we refer to them often as pastors because of their duty in leading the flock, but you can also refer to them as teachers because their primary method of doing that is teaching. They are, they are teaching pastors or pastor teachers, however you want to call it. They both refer to the same person. Paul uses this word teach here to emphasize this is their primary function, their primary role which they do by by not only expounding the Scripture, but also by exhorting and rebuking and all of that based on principles from the Word of God. And so they lead constantly through these principles and, and through this pointing people back to the Word of God. They equip them by that means. Not only by that, but but also living out and providing examples in their own life. Now these men are described throughout all of Scripture. They're pastors in the New Testament. You also see them called elders or overseers. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, you see all of those sort of brought together when Peter instructs his fellow elders to give oversight to the church as good pastors or as good shepherds. And all of this kind of conveys the idea of what this position is or what it what it does. It, in, in terms of being a pastor, it provides. In terms of being an elder, e- these are people with spiritual maturity and discernment. In terms of being an overseer, it's someone with responsibility and authority. These leaders are given to us and described for us in several places throughout Scripture, as I said, most prominently in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, both of which provide the qualifications, or you might say the criteria, for selecting overseers and elders. And while we don't have time to look at those those chapters in detail, we can just take note of the fact that the primary focus in those two chapters, in terms of choosing these teachers, in terms of recognizing these teachers, the primary focus has to do with their life. It has to do with their character. In fact, there's only brief mention in either of those chapters uh, about the issue of teaching, that these men have to be able to teach and, and they have to be able to refute sound doctrine. That's mentioned in both passages, but the primary emphasis is on their family. It is on their disciplines. It's on their parenting. It's how they handle their personal stewardship. It's how they relate to strangers and how they relate to outsiders and how they live out their life and what their speech is like in casual conversation. This is the emphasis in Scripture on their qualifications because it is assumed that for their teaching to have real credibility, it must have been manifested in the way they actually live. Because men who've not put into practice the things that they preach, the things that they teach, tend to distort their teaching. Men or or women who put themselves forward as leaders 
and don't have that kind of life to back it up, they tend to teach their principles and their lessons on one hand in a way that is either hollow and vain or on the other hand in a way that is harsh and overbearing because they basically are teaching untested principles. They're spiritually sounding principles. They might easily impress other people, but no one really knows whether these things really work. They're like the, they're, they're like the men that Paul talks about over in Colossians chapter 2 at the end of that chapter. He talks about these people who have all of these regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish with the use according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this is exactly what takes place for people all the time who, who put themselves forward as teachers who present themselves as leaders, and you have no way of knowing whether or not their life is impacted by the things that they teach. You have no way of knowing whether or not they are uh, affected by it in their home life and in their marriages and in their outreach and in their interactions with other people. All of those things that the Scripture places emphasis on in terms of these leaders, all of those things you can only know by being in close proximity with these men. In other words, if your only interaction with your leaders and your teachers is through a computer screen or a TV screen or whatever, you are essentially incapable of examining the lives of those to whom you are entrusting your spiritual nourishment, your spiritual growth. You're incapable of that fundamental mandate, that fundamental step of examining and confirming and, and qualifying the character of their life. You're incapable of knowing if they have actually embodied and exemplified the principles that they're demanding of you, or whether or not they are exaggerating or, or, or reaching beyond their bounds in what they're demanding of other people, laying on you, in some cases, uh, overly harsh or, or legalistic tendencies that don't really uh, create godliness or on another, in, in another vein, encouraging you towards licentious and loose living that ultimately causes a spiraling down of spiritual life and a decay from inside. All of these things make it necessary for you to be involved with the local church and necessary for you to be involved with your leaders. But that's not your only problem if you just download or tune into your favorite preacher or teacher. Your other problem is, is that their teaching cannot accomplish its primary function in your life. Because Paul says here, there's a specific design for their teaching. And that is for the equipping of people with the Word of God so that they can do the work of the ministry. Which takes us to our second fundamental feature of God's design for the church, which is His design for the task, in verse 12. His design for the task. God has ultimately designed these leaders, these evangelists, these pastor teachers, to not only equip, but to equip in order to produce certain results. And, and this is what He spells out in verse 12. Their design to teach in order to equip the saints 
for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You have to incorporate all of that in your vision of what God wants out of the corporate gathering of the church. God's basic pattern for the church is for you to be equipped by the teaching of the Word so that you can serve other people, so that through that serving, the local congregation is actually built up and the body of Christ is actually built up. As gifted men teach and pray and equip and take advantage of all the resources and as they minister it empowers people it it uh, gives people the knowledge it gives people the maturity so that they turn around and they counsel and they admonish and they disciple and they comfort and they give and they care and they serve and all of this is wrapped up in what Paul has in mind in terms of the work of the ministry. God's design is that you would so grasp the grace uh, uh, that He has given to you through the gospel, through the church, that you would so grasp the grace that God has poured out in your life that you would want to manifest that grace as a part of a local assembly, a local body of Christ. And His desire is that you would understand that tremendous privilege the tremendous privilege, the tremendous blessing of doing that. And his desire is that you would be equipped with the Word of God to be able to fully do that. And then that you would go out there and carry out all of this ministry. But of course you can't do that if you are primarily interacting through a screen. Even if you believe you are being equipped Even if you believe that you are growing spiritually, even if that's what you're telling yourself, you have almost no outlet for accomplishing all the things that the Scripture describes as ministry when it's done to the saints of God. Your only means of contact, if they're digital or virtual or based in the cloud, just don't provide that opportunity. And let me just add that part of the equipping process of your leaders, the part of the equipping process of these pastors and teachers, is actually assessment. They are called to assess you along the way. That's because there's no such thing as self-appointed ministers. The apostles weren't self-appointed. They were sent by Christ. The the evangelists and pastors aren't self-appointed. They are confirmed by the church. You see the early church laying hands on men and giving visible signs of their affirmation. They're they're appointed by the church. Deacons aren't self-appointed. They are also examined, the scripture tells us, and eventually affirmed by the church. And all those who are serving in the church need to be examined. All those who are ministering need to be assessed. In fact, one of the primary responsibilities of pastors in their equipping role is to evaluate those who are under their care and supervision to help them figure out not only where is the best place for them to serve, but also to help them see areas of ongoing weakness and immaturity in their life and in their ministry and to help them to understand how God would want them to grow in those areas and to apply the scripture to those particular weaknesses. Those who have no involvement with the church or minimal involvement with the church who are at best just related to their pastor teachers from a distance, they end up having very unbalanced equipping, or at worst, you might say distorted kind of equipping. 
No sense of outside evaluation, no sense of outside accountability, no sense of outside input, no sense of outside help and encouragement in their growth. Now you might tell yourself, well, I understand all that, but I can still get equipped for my online preacher. I can still get equipped for my downloaded sermon and then just minister to all the people around me in my daily life. The whole, the whole uh, world of Christians will be my church. Everyone who is a believer is a part of the body of Christ. You might convince yourself that the work of the ministry for me is just to help any Christian that I know, no matter where they go to church. But that also reveals where you fail to understand God's third design for the ministry model here. His third um, aspect of how His grace operates through the gathering of the church, and that is, in verse 13, God's design for a particular target. God's design for the target of all of this equipping and all of this ministry is, quite plainly, unity. Spiritual unity. He says he, He's doing all of this so that we would attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God's design leads to this spiritual edification which produces spiritual development that builds up the body of Christ which Paul defines for us, beginning here in verse 13, first of all, as an increasing unity of the faith, or an increasing unity among believers. Secondly, an increasing knowledge and intimacy with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, with mature manhood, or we might call it full spiritual maturity. And then fourth, he defines it as the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ-likeness in every area of your life. A balanced growth of Christ-likeness. Now, it's really important that you understand the target here. It's really important that you understand what we're aiming at. It is unity through Christ-likeness. Unity through Christ-likeness. And you see Paul, when he laying all this out, this is really the primary focus of his entire chapter, the primary focus of what he's trying to get at here. Because he understood what Jesus had said all the way back in John 13, verse 34, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have one, uh, if you have love for one another. In other words, he's, he's talking about a visible reality, a visible demonstration, something that's put on display before the watching world. And what is it? It is, it is, the, it is the display of love that we have for our fellow believers. Paul understood what Jesus prayed for in John 17. I don't ask he says in John 17, 20, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that is through the word of the apostles, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You see, the Apostle Paul understood that it is essential for us to learn to love one another and to dwell in unity. It's essential that we learn to love one another the way that Christ loves us. 
essential that we uh, strive for all this and achieve all this is essential for the sake of our testimony. It's essential for the sake of evangelism. It's essential for the sake of our mission. And you can't accomplish that sitting by yourself in front of a screen. Now Paul, understanding this essential nature of Christ's likeness within the community, He'll return to this bound in verse 20. He, he actually expands on this. He says in verse 20, he reminds them how they learned Christ, which, which he says in verse 22 involves putting off everything from the world, putting off the old life and being renewed in your mind and putting on a new life, which is created after the likeness of God. And then he unpacks that putting off and putting on in beginning in verse 25. No more lying, no more stealing, no more anger, no, no more corrupt talk. But instead, honesty and kindness and generosity and forgiveness and edification, just as Christ forgave you, he says, you're to forgive one another. Again, you are, you are doing all of this so that you reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You live the way He lived. You, you forgive the way He forgave. You show kindness and grace the way He showed kindness and grace. Now, if that's the target, if that's the aim of what God has designed the church to do, you cannot accomplish that in isolation. You can't accomplish that through online church. You can't fulfill what God's designed for you to be. You can't grow the way God's designed for you to grow. You can't, you can't benefit from God what God has designed you to benefit, uh, um, the way God's designed you to benefit through the teaching of the Word. You can't have any of that. Because so many of the things that God wants to accomplish, both in terms of your deeds as well, in, as, well as your growth, and your attitudes and your virtues, all of these are transactional. They involve other people. Generosity, forgiveness, kindness. They're things that are expressed toward others, not toward yourself. Now, again, you might try to convince yourself, or someone might try to convince themselves that they can do this with anyone. It doesn't have to be the local church. They can just do it with their neighbor down the street or their coworker or whatever it might be. They'll just live out their Christian life that way. Well, you ought to do that. You certainly ought to express that love toward everyone. But God has a specific mandate that you express it visibly within the local body of Christ. In fact, when Paul addresses these issues, beginning with honesty in verse 25, he spells it out in terms of its motivation. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. You're members of one another. And Paul doing that picks up this very um, uh, common theme or this theme that he uses several times throughout his letters to talk about the church as if it is a body, as if it is a, a functioning uh, a human body with all of its parts and members and every one of them being necessary, every one of them contributing you're, you're a part of a body, like a physical body. You're a member, and if you cut off yourself or you don't function the way God has called you to function, you are handicapping the local assembly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if one member suffers, the entire body suffers. If you withhold your interaction, if you withhold your gifts, if you withhold your participation, you're hurting 
the body and you're hurting Christ. He hasn't designed you to be a sole proprietor. He's designed you to be a, a, a partner along with all the other members of the local body of, uh, of Christ in an entire enterprise that God is working through His church. So you're a member of the local body of Christ, and as a member, one of your motivations is to give testimony to a watching world about the way that you love other Christians. In fact, this is not only how Paul ends Ephesians 4, it's actually how he began the chapter. He brackets the whole discussion with this same kind of terminology and functioning and language of unity. Back in chapter uh, uh, 4, verse 1, he spent the uh, beginning of this chapter saying the same things. After giving a long discourse in the first three chapters of the book on the grace of God, when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us that we need to walk in a manner worthy of this calling of grace. And if you're a Christian, you're recipients of God's grace, your life ought to reflect that specifically in how it manifests itself toward others within the body of Christ, those relationships. In other words, you cannot claim to take the gospel seriously if you don't take relationships in the church seriously. And again, in verse 2, you can see Paul using this transactional kind of a language with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you just listen to that language, it implies not only that you're interacting with one another, that you're, you know, you're, you're giving and you're forbearing and all that stuff, it also implies that those interactions are sometimes difficult. They require patience. They require you to show long-suffering, to bear up with one another. They require you to humble yourself sometimes. They require you to show gentleness. They require effort to maintain unity. This is what God desires from every Christian. This is how He's designed the church. And the truth is you just can't do those things in isolation. You can't grow you can't serve, you can't equip, you can't mature in those ways if you just lock yourself away and stare at a computer screen for hours on end, days. You might tell yourself, well, every time I go to such and such a place and every time I interact with such and such a, a person or a group of people, I always end up getting hurt. I mean, last time I went to that group, last time I went to that ministry, last time I went to that place, I just got hurt. And so you just... You just somehow convince yourself, why bother? Why bother? I'll just go to my house. I'll just go to my room. I'll just close the door. I'll just sit in front of my phone or my computer screen or whatever. I'll just listen to my music, even Christian music, and I'll read my blogs or I'll listen to sermons or I'll do whatever I'm going to do. But none of that, or I should say through none of that, can you ever fulfill what God has called you to be. See, this is the reality that you are suppressing and denying. The fact that God has made you in His image. And as an image bearer, it is fundamental to your, your, your being, it's fundamental to your creation, that you exist and you thrive within community. And that community that best is suited for that purpose is the church. You cannot mature you cannot grow, you cannot, you cannot glorify God in any way 
You can't form the character of Christ when you are just locked away in that kind of isolation. And let me tell you something else. The truth is this. Sin wants you alone. Sin wants you alone. It loves it when you're alone. The devil loves it when you're alone. Sin loves it when you're not surrounded with other people. Sin loves it when you don't have to respond to a bunch of people and be accountable to a bunch of people. That's exactly the kind of environment where sin can grow. It can grow when you're not having to rub up against those who might challenge you in your faith. It, might, it can grow where you're not placing yourself under sound-minded counsel and teaching. Pride can grow. Selfishness can grow. Lust can grow. Bitterness can grow. Greed can grow. And it might seem as if it satisfies your heart at first, but it is a fleeting and a false satisfaction. Because before long, those sins, which are seemingly satisfying, they grip your heart and chain it and enslave it until it's hard to break free. But see, when you participate regularly in community, when you participate regularly with a bunch of people who, who to be quite honest, are different than you, they have different personalities, they have different interests, they have different pursuits sometimes, but you're interacting with them, it requires patience, it requires long-suffering, it requires forgiveness, it requires self-sacrifice. It requires you to get your mind off of your self-indulgence and get your mind onto other people. It requires you to, sh to show kindness, to be challenged in all those ways, to put to death selfish desires, and you end up growing. You end up maturing. You end up being conformed to the image of Christ. Paul's words here in Ephesians 4 not only imply the difficulties of these relationships, but also the motivation, you might say, or the potential. He says in verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so now we see clearly God's design specifically is that these character qualities that are being worked out through, through the challenges and the difficulties of these relationships as we find, uh, incrementally and slowly, as we find victory, as we find new patterns emerging in our life, you are able to demonstrate increasingly unity in the body. You're demonstrating to a watching world that there is one God, that there is one faith, that there is one baptism, which... By the way, just highlights the fact that God's given these ordinances like communion and baptism to be observed corporately, not individually. And they're a critical part of the testimony of the church. Now all that brings us back to our text because Paul's telling us that God equips us through these leaders and the, and the equipping allows us to edify and to build up the body of Christ. And the goal of all this is maturity and unity that can only be um, achieved as we strive together through all the difficulties of these relationships. And, and ultimately, beginning in verse 14, we can see God's design for our transformation. 
now we're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul says, you're no longer to be children, you're no longer to be immature, you're no longer to act like a, like a, a child or a youth or whatever it might be. You're no longer to express that kind of naivete and gullibility and immaturity. Instead, you're to put, your, put on a kind of spiritual maturity that's no longer duped by the schemes and the tricks and the lies of the world. The kind of things that tell you that you don't need the rest of the church, that you don't need the rest of, uh, uh, of your body in Christ, the family in Christ. You're to lay aside all of those deceitful schemes, deceitful lies, the human cunning and craftiness. And instead, what are you supposed to do? Walk in truth. Walk in truth. Truth instead of error, love instead of craftiness, speaking truth rather than deceitful schemes, rather than perverting the Word of God and, and, and distorting your Christian life and, and, and skewing what you think is ultimately the most satisfying thing for you in the world. Your motivation isn't that kind of selfishness and self-indulgence and individualism. Instead, it's love. It's love. With the end result in verse 16, that we grow up in every way into Him who is the head, that is, into Christ. So we are transformed into Him. We can only do that as we are involved with other people, those especially people who are more mature than you, who can challenge you, who can point out your weaknesses and your faults. Our lives are growing more and more conformed to Christ. Now this obviously is a pretty comprehensive statement. Every area of your life, in every way, he says, you're to be transformed into Christ. It's not an option. It's not an option. You can't just, you can't just content yourself with growing in one little area, one area of theology, one area of service, one area of generosity, or whatever it might be. You need to grow in every way. You need to grow as a communicator. You need to grow as a servant. You need to grow as a husband, a father, as a child, as a, as a, as a wife and mother. You need to grow in all of those ways. I don't know if you know this, but a baby's head, when it's born, is unusually large in comparison to the rest of its body. Just check out a baby the next time you see them. But as the body grows, you notice that it grows in due proportion to the head. As it matures, as it takes on capabilities uh, more and more to be able to do things, it is growing into the head. And this is the picture that Paul has for us here. We have this magnificent, beautiful Savior, our head, who is Jesus Christ. And what we want to do is we want to grow so that we can actually be the kind of members of a body that He wants us to be. And we can be conformed to the image of Christ. Always, in all aspects, growing into Him. And you notice Paul's language there, 
Finally, in verse 16, the whole body then joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. No one being left out, no one pulling back, no one sort of checking out and, 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 and um, you know, leaving, being left behind. Every one of them, every member with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, when each one understands this call to growth, when each one understands the grace that's been given to them, what's the result? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for. This is exactly what He told His disciples He wanted. He wanted us to be so connected, so joined together, so equipped to be able to minister to one another so that we accomplish that purpose. Now really, this is just common sense, or it has been for most people throughout all time. But in modern society, this is increasingly lost, partly because of the conveniences that we have in our society, with more and more offerings out there for online communication. And again, I'm no, I'm no uh, enemy of those kinds of things. I mean, we want to make podcasts available and streaming available and all those other things because we understand that from time to time there might be circumstances. You may be on vacation, you may be uh, away from home, you may be sick or whatever it might be. There are occasions where we can take advantage of these blessings, but we can never Imagine that these are to replace what God has designed the church to be. There might be busyness in, their li in your life. There might even be hurts and pains that cause you to want to pull back from the church. But you don't understand sometimes that it is through the struggle of all of that, it's through the hurts and pains, it's through the sacrifice that comes in the midst of busyness, through which or I should say, through those things, is how the Lord grows you. All along the way, hopefully, fellow members encouraging you and edifying you and supporting you so that we may all express the love of Christ, so that we can all express the unity of Christ, so that we can all be one as He is one, together with us and with God. We're so ready, I think, all of us, for the day that we can come back together. I appreciated reading through just some literature last week on the Spanish flu, and I was just noticing the announcements from churches when they were announcing that they were going to get together again in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In this one particular church, the pastor was announcing he was going to preach a sermon from that grand old psalm that says, How glad I was when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I think we feel that way, right? I mean, that'd be a great sermon to, to preach or when everyone comes back. That's the way we ought to feel. Our nation has uh, come to a grinding halt. It's brought our families together, like uh, maybe during the holidays or something like that. It's also filled people with all kinds of anxiety and fear, not only over their health, but over their economic future. There are so many ministry opportunities that are not only arising, but will continue to arise. And I'm so anxious to get back together as a church and to think together and to pray together and to work together to be able to minister to those gifts, uh, minister to those needs with our gifts. And we look forward to that, to express our love for one another, to express our unity with one another, to worship the Lord by walking worthy of the manner with which He's called us. Until that day... 
we will reflect on what we're missing. We'll reflect on the, the fellowship that our heart and soul yearns for. We'll pray that the Lord would keep our fellow brothers and sisters safe. And we will pray that He will bring us back together soon, that He will bring an end to all of this chaos, this uh, suffering, this disease, for all kinds of reasons, but for one of the most important reasons, so that the world can see the church, so that the church can fellowship together the way He's called us to fellowship together, so that we can be the body of Christ the way He wants us to be the body of Christ. I trust you'll pray with me to that end. I trust that you will, in the meantime, continue to stir your heart with an eagerness to participate all the more when the day arises when we can do so again. Join me together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for what you give us in terms of this technology. We're so grateful for the opportunity that we have to still unite our hearts and minds together with the Word of God, to even be equipped through the Word of God. But Lord, I pray that this equipping would have its perfect work, that it would purify our minds from all that is unworthy of you, of all that would be unworthy of the calling with which we've been called, that it would, that it would stir us to want to stir one another to love and good deeds, that it would help us to consider how to do that, that it would make us all the more committed when the day comes for us to join together again corporately and face to face, that we would do so with so much joy, that we would do so with so much eagerness, with so much commitment, not just to you, but because of you to one another. Lord, we ask that you, you would do that quickly. We ask that you would show your grace to our leaders, to our president, our governor, to our, our mayors and council members and representatives. We pray for all of those who are caring for the sick during this time, that you would show them tremendous grace, that you would have mercy on the weak. We pray, Father, that you would bring all of these things to a swift close for the sake of your name and your church. And ultimately, through it all, through all of the suffering that our nation is facing, help us as the body of Christ to demonstrate to a watching world what it is that has transformed us, the gospel that's touched our hearts. It's bound us together with a unique love for one another and with a love for all the watching world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.